is from Romans 11, verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father, only you know the expanse of the cosmos, yet you love us. Help us to acknowledge your infinite wisdom and know with certainty your personal grace and love. Lord, give Pastor Jeff the strength to minister to us this morning with the guidance of the Holy Spirit and open our hearts to receive your instruction. We love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Kyle. Good morning. Well, if you didn't notice, Pastor Daniel, he's out of commission today. He's down with a fever and some achy chills. So if you could just pray for him, I would really appreciate that. Thank you, Drew, wherever you are, for leading us in worship today. Great job, team. Uh, Also, I don't know if you knew, but uh, some of you do uh, know, Monday I took a pretty bad spill. I was very faithfully trying to get some decorations out of the garage in my rafters, and I was coming down the ladder, and I missed the two bottom rungs, and so I just kind of turned my ankle, and it turned all of that energy uh, into throwing me into my car. I dented my fender pretty good. Thank you, fender, for stopping me. Uh, but essentially, uh, I ended up in the ER later with a C brace on my neck, unable to move for many hours, and finally, I got some uh, CT results back, but I'm fine. No broken bones. Hallelujah. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I'm here, anyway, and uh, still a little stiff, but uh, thank you for your prayers. It, really, it's been a miraculous turnaround. For the first 72 hours, I just couldn't move. I mean, I couldn't get out of bed. And I could just not even walk anywhere or do anything. And then um, Thursday morning, I just woke up. I felt great. And I realized that week that I had lost my glasses. Again, the accident, I had lost my glasses. But then yesterday morning, I went out. I was able to drive. And I found them on the hood of my car just sitting there. So that's how bad that was. My brother left me the funniest message. He, he called me and left me a message and just said, hey, man, if you don't know, Uh, the story. When I was a kid, I fell out of a tree that he and I were climbing, and I woke up in the hospital out of a coma later, many hours later, and he's the one that told my mom and dad. So he leaves me a message yesterday on my phone and said, hey, man, I heard you fell off a ladder. Jeff, you need to not be climbing. (laughs) He goes, I thought you would have learned that lesson in the 70s. So um, apparently I didn't. We'll be in Romans chapter 9. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. But I wanted to start with the Romans 11, 33 through 36. If you could put that, screen up, that uh, scripture up on the screen again, just look at what Paul says. Now, we are coming to the end of a discussion about God's foreknowledge, God's predestination, God's election of a people, of his people, right? So after Paul exhausts Everything he knows about that subject, he ends with this. There are some things we don't understand. 
there are some things in God's mind, according to God's judgments, that we don't totally get. The depth of the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable, how inscrutable. What he wants to say is there are some things that God has revealed to us here about his foreknowledge, about his election of a people, about his predestining or preordination of a people. There are some things you and I are going to learn over the next few weeks, but there are some things, God's motives, God's reasons that are still hidden in his mind. And wouldn't it be great if you could know exactly what someone was thinking? Sometimes you wouldn't want to know. Sometimes that might cause you some trouble. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and also in Romans chapter 8, if you recall, that the only person who knows their own thoughts is the spirit within a person. And the only person who knows the thoughts of God is God's spirit. And God has revealed certain things, the mystery of the gospel to us by the Holy Spirit. And there are some things that God has revealed to us, but folks, there's some things God hasn't. I don't know why it is that God is sovereign and he preordains and men choose freely and they're judged for their sins, for their choices. I don't know how those two things work together. I just know they're right here in the text. And so each week we're going to start with Romans chapter 11, 33 through 36, to be reminded that there are some things we can know. There are some things we can't know. And when it comes to the stuff we can't know, we're not going to theorize. We're not going to go beyond. We're going to try to restrain ourselves to the text, okay? And I want to encourage you to memorize that song. It's called The Ode to God's Omniscience, The Ode to God's Knowledge and His Wisdom. And I want to encourage you to memorize it. We're going to say it together in each service uh, to start the messages in the coming weeks until we get to the end of chapter 11. A little recap, by way of recap, Paul has concluded chapter 8. By drawing our attention to the called ones. Who are the called ones? Who are they? They are those individuals from among the Jews and the Gentiles whom God has foreknown from eternity past, predestined to adopt as his own, called by the Spirit out of the grave and justified by faith in Christ's free grace and destined for resurrection glory. And because of this, Pastor Pat reminded us last week that we can be fully persuaded. Are you fully persuaded that there is nothing in all creation that can drag you out of the loving arms of God? Are you fully persuaded that there is nothing that can come between you and your God? Nothing in all creation. You name it. Not the world, not powers, not Satan, not even our own conscience. When our own conscience condemns us for sin, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus. Chapter 9 may seem now like it starts a new subject. Why does Paul do this? Why does Paul go back to the subject of Jew and Gentile? Do you remember Romans 1? It was a long time ago. Romans 1, Romans 2, he starts the book by picking on us Gentiles, idolaters. And he says, the wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness of those who suppress the knowledge of God through their idolatry, failing to acknowledge and give God thanks for all things. 
We descend into a morass of idolatry, and then out of that idolatry comes every evil, wicked, profligate action. And Paul says that is the state of the Gentile. And the Jew crosses his arms and says, yeah, that's right, Paul. And then in chapter 2, he says, you who preach against stealing, remember the Torah? Thou shalt not steal. Do you steal? You're sinners too. He tells the Jew, he says, you're no better off than the Gentile because you have failed to live up to Moses' command, which is to live according to the law perfectly. You can only have life if you live according to the law perfectly, and you know you haven't done it. This is why you needed the atonement system. This is why you needed the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And so Paul now turns, it seems like Paul is turning back to a Jew-Gentile conversation, a conversation about Jews and Gentiles, but in truth, he has really never left that. What he tried to say in Romans chapter 3 is, listen, Jew, Gentile, all have sinned and fallen short of the glorious standard of God, and all must then be justified freely by faith in Christ as well. And so what about the Jews? If God has now saved the world through Jesus, the Jew, and that salvation is by faith in Christ apart from the righteousness sought through the works of the law, then what is God's plan for ethnic Israel? We're going to find out over the next few weeks what God's plan for ethnic Israel is. And you can almost hear the ethnic Jews in the Roman church saying to Paul, where does that leave us? The main idea today is that God's original promise to Abraham has not failed, but has succeeded. Because through Christ, that is Abraham's descendant, Christ, all of the nations of the earth have been blessed with the offer of salvation. So the primary issue and the objection in these three chapters is going to be in verse 6. I want to show it to you. Look at verse 6. He says, it's not as though God's promise or his word had failed. Now that just implies a question. The question is, did God fail? Did God's promise or his word to the Jews, the ethnic Jews, as his elect people, fail? And he's going to say no. And that's the burden of our message today. That's the burden of what we're looking at in chapter 9 today is, how did God's plan then succeed? How did it succeed? Number one, God's promise had not failed because they are Israelites. God's promise hadn't failed because they're Israelites. That which, that's what verses 1 through 5 is about. So Paul makes it very clear that God has no intention to merely cast the Jew aside, to merely cast them aside in now favor of the Gentiles. No, for Paul, it's both and. It's an elect group of people, elect, chosen, called ones from among those two groups. We are one people, one family, Jew and Gentile, by faith in the Messiah. And everyone must come by faith to the Messiah. So notice the first thing Paul says here. Paul says that he was deeply burdened for the salvation of his countrymen. Verses 1 and 2, he says, I, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit. He's just saying, I, I'm speaking as sincerely as I know how to speak that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for my countrymen. So if God has now just thrown the ethnic Jew aside and he's now moved on to his new people, 
the saved Gentiles, then why is Paul so burdened for them? Why is Paul so burdened for his kinsmen according to the flesh? God hasn't thrown them aside. A quick point of application on that, the historic anti-Semitic, the historic antipathy in church history toward the Jews is entirely out of place for the Christian. Now, that may sound strange to you because today, evangelicals enjoy a very cordial relationship with the Jews. Ethnic Israel, national Israel, typically the evangelical today is very pro-Israel. You talk to the average evangelical, they're like, yeah, we, we love the Jews. But you have to understand that's a recent development. In 2,000 years of church history, there has been deep antipathy toward these, uh, uh, between these two groups, toward each, toward each other. It all goes back, really, it's sparked by a revolt in 135 B.C. Let's do a little history. You ready? History lesson? Of course. 135 A.D. 135 A.D. It's called the Bar Kokhba Revolt. Now, how many of you know that the temple of Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 70? A.D. 70, the temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was decimated. Titus and Vespasian, the Romans, came down and nearly wiped the Jewish nation off the face of the earth. Destroyed their temple, destroyed their holy city. And Jesus had prophesied this in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus had said in Matthew 24, he had warned them about following the path of revolution and that it was going to lead to the destruction of their temple, temple, the destruction of their national way of life. Because the Christian faith doesn't follow the path of revolution. The Christian faith follows the path of the cross. Jesus was hung on a cross and died for and gave his life for our sins, gave his life for us, and then he tells us, you, if you're going to follow me, take up your cross and follow my way. The Christian faith is the way of the cross. It's not the way of political revolution. I'm sorry to tell you that. And so they did follow that path. Now, in 135, they did it again. They got a bunch of people around this guy named Bar Kokhba. They declared him the Messiah. And then they led a revolt, a political revolt against their oppressors, Rome, the iron fist of Rome again. And this time, Rome crushed them so bad, it nearly did decimate them. It, it nearly wiped them out as a country, even worse than AD 70. And it was at that moment, scholars call this the parting of the ways. That's what it's called, the parting of the ways. The Gentile Christians, now Christianity had taken really hold in the Gentile world, and there were masses of Gentile Christians, and the Gentile Christians just looked at their Jewish brother and said, listen, we can't do this anymore. We've told you and we've told you, this is not the way of the Messiah. This is not God's way. We're following the way of the cross. You're following the way of the sword. We're not on the same team here. And the Jews looked at the Gentiles and said, listen, if you're not going to fight with us, if you're not going to stand with us, then no, you're not part of us. You are no longer a Jewish sect. So the Christians left the synagogue, they no longer started meeting in the synagogues largely, largely, and the Jews kicked them out. And for 1,800 to 1,900 years, there has been deep, deep resentment between these two groups until the 20th century. And then miraculously, somehow, evangelicals in the 30s and the 40s adopted Israel and embraced them 
And by 1980, 1980, scholars began to rediscover the Jewish roots of the Christian faith. And there was a veritable explosion of scholarship from the 1980s to rediscover the Jewish roots of the Christian faith. That's why you have guys like me who are very interested in these sorts of things. And so really, that, it's been that recent so understand that it really is a recent phenomenon that we had friendly and warm relationships with the Jews. And so this kind of anti-Jewish sentiment is entirely out of place for Christians. Notice what Paul says. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for them. They're the people of God. They're my kinsmen according to the flesh. So when you see a so-called Christian who sits down on a podcast like Kanye West. I don't know if you saw this. Some of you, by your smiles and shaking your head, you did see it. Kanye West, who is a pop star, rap star, sat down with Lex Friedman, and he sat down with the nutcase uh, Alex Jones. (laughs) And he sat down with these guys, and he basically went on and on about how great Hitler was and how he did a lot of things for humanity. Hitler did a lot of things for humanity how great the Nazis were. I love Hitler, he says. I love the Nazis. And then he had the audacity to name Jesus as his Savior and Lord. And I just wanted to whack that young man and say, son, Jesus is not your Savior and your Lord. This man who you think is your Savior and your Lord was a Jew, the lion from the tribe of Judah. The word Judah is the word Jew. That's the first century for the word Jew. So understand, Jesus was a Jew. Paul was a Jew. The apostles were Jews. The first converts of Jesus were Jews. Salvation was for the ethnic Israelites. And Paul says, my heart is in anguish. My heart is broken for them. Next, the Jews were cut off from Christ due to unbelief. Look at verse 3. He says, for I... I could wish that I myself were cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. So he frames the whole predicament of chapter 9, 10, and 11. The Jewish predicament, it's not a matter of their vocation, folks. Their their vocation, their job description was to bring the Messiah into the world through their line, the tribe of Judah. And then the Messiah was to bring all the nations of the earth into the family of God. And their dilemma is not that they're just not sort of doing their job. Their their dilemma is that they're cut off from salvation. They're cursed. They've received in themselves the curses of Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 24. What were the curses? God said, listen, if you reject the way of salvation, Leviticus 24, you reject me and and the curses of this covenant will be upon you. They rejected the way of salvation. Deuteronomy chapter 28, if you reject my commands, the curses of this covenant, all the curses of this covenant will come and visit you. What command have they rejected? To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. They rejected that. And so God now calls all men everywhere, Jew and Gentile alike, to believe in Jesus, the Messiah, for salvation. They haven't done it. And Paul says, I wish I could trade places with them. To be honest with you, if I could, I'd trade places with them. 
because they're cut off from the way of salvation and they brought, they've heaped upon themselves the curses of Torah. The second point of quick application, Christian Zionism at the expense of the gospel is also out of place. So anti-Semitism for a Christian is out of place. What Ye did is out of place. It's inappropriate. But so is Christian Zionism at the expense of the gospel. Like I said, evangelicals generally are very favorable of Jews. We're very favorable of ethnic Israel. We're very favorable, favorable of national Israel. We typically are as a people. But understand, at the expense of the gospel, that is inappropriate. Here's what I mean. There are some ministries who teach that just because Jews are Jews, and they were born under the old covenant, that if they observe the old covenant, they'll be saved by the old covenant. I've heard preachers preach this, and I have to tell you, Paul doesn't think that. We'll find that out from the passage, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11. Paul doesn't think that's true. He thinks they're cut off and they're cursed. They brought upon, upon themselves the curses of the law. I was watching uh, Ben Shapiro this last week. How many of you know who he is? He's a young Jewish guy. He's an apologist for American conservatism. And I watch him from time. I don't watch him all the time, but I watch him from time to time. And he was having an interview, a Sunday interview with a Christian apologist, a very famous Catholic apologist. And uh, an apologist is just a person who defends the Christian faith. And this person is very famous in his world, in his circles. And so he asked this priest, he asked him, he said, point blank, I'm a Jew. I follow the Torah the best I can. I do everything I can. I live up to the moral law of God the best I can. He says, I do a lot of good in the world. I think I'm doing a lot of good in the world. Tell me why I won't be saved. And this so-called Christian defender of the faith, this Christian apologist said to him, oh, I think you will be saved. Because people get saved by directly believing in Jesus, and people can get saved also by indirectly just obeying the righteous commandments of the law. Does that sound like Paul's gospel in Romans? I just wanted to scream at the TV. No, no, that is not the message. Paul thinks that his people, according to the flesh, are cut off from the way of Christ. He thinks they brought upon themselves the curses of Torah. They're not saved. They need salvation. They need to come to their Messiah for salvation. But we should never forget the Jews were privileged in election. They were. Watch what he does here. Verses 4 and 5. He says, well, they, my countrymen, are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption. The adoption. Now, remember in Romans chapter 8, he tells us that we have been adopted by the Holy Spirit into God's family. But they were first adopted as God's privileged nation. And to them belongs the glory. What's the glory we learned in Romans chapter 8? It's the glory of resurrection. They were first given the promise of bodily resurrection at the end of the age. And the covenants, the covenant of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and Moses, the law, the Torah and David's covenant, and the promises, the ancestors, the patriarchs are theirs. And from them, the physical descendants came the Christ. From them comes the Messiah of God, the lion from the tribe of Judah, who is what? God over all praise forever. Amen. You want to know why they can't receive Jesus? That's why. They can't receive Jesus because of that passage right there in verse 5. Because Jesus 
is proclaimed God overall praised forever. The Christian faith teaches that the Son of God is God the Son. The Christian faith teaches that God, Yahweh, the Old Testament God of the universe, has taken up human flesh. He's, taken, he's tabernacled in a human life, Jesus of Nazareth. And this is the stone that makes them stumble. It's the rock that makes them fall. This is the rock of offense he mentions in verse 33. But they were privileged in election. But this is the message that they cannot receive. So even though they have this enviable heritage, they cannot accept the message that their God, the God of the Old Testament, has become enfleshed in humanity, in the life of Jesus. So God's promise to Israel has not failed. Even though at present they are cut off from Christ and have received the curses of Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 24 due to unbelief, God commands all men everywhere to believe in Jesus the Messiah, and they still have the pedigree. They still have the heritage, and they can reclaim it any time they want, but they have rejected its unerring witness. The unerring witness of that Old Testament is to point to Christ, to point the salvation that is in his cross and his cross alone. And number two, God's promise succeeded because God's election is according to his will. God's election is according to his will. Now, if I asked you, hey, did you succeed at that thing that you, that you did? And your answer was, yeah, because I did what I wanted to do. That's kind of a strange answer. Normally, we think of success in terms of metrics, don't we? We think of success in terms of measurables. But understand that God doesn't have anyone external to him that is directing measurables at him. No one external to God could ever say, hey, listen, these, these are the metrics you should have hit. These are the hoops you should have jumped through. Listen, I think there could be a little less suffering and evil in the world. But you're not the creator. You're not in a position to make that judgment. You could say, listen, I think a few more Jews in the first century should have been saved. You know? Like when Jesus came and should have did the Mount of Transfiguration right there on the Mount of Olives so that all the Jews could save and come and every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Yeah, but you're not God. You're not running the story. Understand that Paul wants to fundamentally redefine how, how we define success when it comes to God. How is God successful? God is successful when God does what he wants to do. And what Paul is trying to tell us here is this story unfolded as God had foreseen it and as God wanted it to unfold. This story unfolded according to his will. Look at verse 6. He says, but it's not as though the word of God or the promise of God had failed. Now here's the key. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That is, not all who are children of Abraham not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Now, he's talking about natural, physical descent. He's talking about being an ethnic Jew. Not all who are ethnically descended from Abraham are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. Notice what he's doing here. Paul's argument here is that if it were a matter of mere natural descent, the children of Abraham, it would include Ishmael, wouldn't it? But it doesn't. The original promise did not include him. 
The promise would be realized through the line of Isaac, not through the line of Ishmael. Now, Paul has been in the synagogue, and he has heard the counter-objections. He has heard the counter-arguments so many times he anticipates this. Because the counter-objection to this, or the counter-argument would be, wait a second, Ishmael was half Egyptian, man. He wasn't a full Jew. (laughs) So it's still ethnic. And he goes, oh, is it? Verse 9. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by, children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done anything either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now we're going to deal with verse 13 next week. So I'll explain what he's talking about here about loving Jacob and hating Esau. We're going to talk about that in terms of, in Semitic terms. We're going to look at that from their perspective. But right now, here's the point I want you to get. Paul anticipates that somebody's going to say, listen, Ishmael, Hagar, uh, Hagar's son, she was half Egyptian man. So then he moves directly to Jacob and Esau. And he says, yeah, but Jacob and Esau were sons of Isaac. And God chose Jacob, chose Jacob, he didn't choose Esau. And if you look at the list here, there are about five examples that he gives of God making selections, God making choices according to his own will. Now, does this mean that God's will is capricious or arbitrary in choosing? No. Just because you and I don't know God's reasons for making these choices doesn't mean he doesn't have them. It's just according to Romans eleven thirty three, you and I don't know them. You, don't, you and I don't know the reasons why he chooses some and he doesn't choose others. So neither brother had done any works to merit God's sovereign election of one or the other. Understand that even though we don't know exactly what God's reasons are for choosing some and not others, we do know what those reasons aren't. The reason isn't based on works. It's not based on any works that they had done. They weren't born yet. And it's not based on any works that they would do. No works. It's based on God's sovereign election alone. So he gives us five examples. What are they? God's sovereign choice. Example number one, we mentioned God's choice of Isaac over Ishmael. Example two is Jacob over Esau, verse 13. And then you have two more brothers, Moses over Pharaoh. And here's what he says about Pharaoh, verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul anticipates two natural objections. We're going to start to deal with those next week. The first one is in verse 14. Just circle verse 14. Just circle 14. And that is, is God unrighteous? Is there unrighteousness in God? In other words, is God the author of sin? So Paul is going to deal with that objection. The second objection is in verse 19. Well, then, How can God hold me responsible if he raised Pharaoh up for this very purpose to demonstrate his glory through his wrath? Then 
how can he judge Pharaoh? How can he judge me? How can I be responsible for my choices? But what the text teaches is that God is sovereign and he elects, and you and I are responsible for the free choices that we make. That's what the text teaches. And so understand that Paul is going to address those two objections. We're not going to address them today, but that's what's coming. But he gives us five examples here. He gives us Moses, uh, God's choice of Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Moses over Pharaoh. Example number four is really an illustration. He gives us the potter and the clay. He says, well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why did you make me like this? But has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So what Paul appeals to is God's right as the creator to determine all things, to determine our function and our purpose. Example number five is the remnant of Israel within a vast number of descendants, verse 27. He says, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. So his next example is that God has saved some within the group. Understand, the group is Israel. The group is the Jews, but God has saved a remnant. That means some within the group. And so Isaiah cries out concerning this, that only a remnant will be saved. So where do all these examples lead? Verse 24, even us whom he called, not only from among the Jews, but also from among the Gentiles. So God's program with national Israel had not failed because God brought them into existence in order for them to bring forth the Messiah and the world's Savior. And while God's promises are yes and amen, God brings forth innumerable descendants as more than the sands of the seashore, more than the starry heavens. Isaiah recognizes that we have a problem here. How is God going to get that many descendants if he's only going to save a remnant from among his original people? Well, here's the plan. Number three, God's promise succeeded because the world is blessed with salvation through Abraham. So God is now going to turn to the rest of the world and he's going to incorporate all the Gentile peoples of the earth and he's going to summon them. He's going to invite them now into his holy family by faith. Now, notice very carefully what he says here. He says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Who's that? Who are the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Us, the Gentiles. And now look what God has done to the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Look at what he's done. In order to make known, so he... he he endured us with much patience. He put up with us. Verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy. Now, those same people who were the vessels of his wrath, rejected by God, as God chose Israel, now those same people are vessels of mercy. Those same people have been offered salvation, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called. Who did he call? He called us not from just among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. 
and her who was not my beloved, I will call my beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, now he says, there they will be called sons of the living God. You see what Paul is saying here. The very nations that God had rejected, God chose Israel. And God chose a remnant out of Israel. And now what, what, what Paul is saying is, the very objects of God's wrath that God raised up to display his wrath, God has now turned to them and offered them mercy. You say, that doesn't sound fair. Again, you and I are not in a position to gainsay God's judgments on the matter. If that's the way God wanted to do it, that's the way he did it. So what is God's plan? Paul is constantly pushing back to Abraham, constantly. Let's look at it. Genesis 12, 2 and 3. He says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, a people. And I will bless you and I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So I'm raising you up to make you a great nation so that you will be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. Genesis 28, 14, God's promise to Jacob, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Again, in chapter 22, verse 17, mirrored in Exodus 32 to the people, I will indeed make you or bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sands on the seashore. All right. And notice how he's going to do it in Isaiah 49. It says, he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. And it is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. So this is Israel restoring Israel. This is the man, the new Israel, the new Jacob restoring, fallen, sinful Israel, the nation. He says, that's not enough. I will also make you a light for the nations to be, to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is how God is going to do it. Now let's see how the New Testament authors interpreted these and many other passages like it. Galatians 3, verse 8 and 27 and 29. He says, now the scriptures say, saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying all the nations will be blessed through you. Verse 9, consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. Verse 27, for those, this is his conclusion on the matter. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no longer a Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed according to the promise, heirs according to the promise. If you are in Christ by faith, you followed Abraham who believed God and was God credited to his account righteousness. So this is how God now is going to have as many descendants of Abraham as the starry hosts of the sky. He's going to bring the Gentile peoples into his family. Again, Romans 4.16, it says, This is why the promise is by faith, so that it may be according to grace, to guarantee it to all the descendants. Who are the descendants? Not only to those who... Uh, to the one who is of the law, that is the ethnic Jew, but also to the one who is of Abraham's faith. He is the father of us all. So the reader in Rome might conclude that Israel's rejection for the sake of the Gentiles, salvation means that God's plan had failed among Israel. 
that God was unfaithful to his promise to ethnic and national Israel, but that's not true. Understand that that objection, Paul is addressing that objection in the next three chapters. So what do we learn? Let's recap. First, we learned that God's promise to ethnic Israel had not failed. God was faithful to call them, to choose them, to choose a remnant among them, and through them to bring the Messiah who would save many, who would save many, many from among the Jews and from among the Gentile nations. And Paul shows his own loving care and concern for his own people because his heart is torn in two. His heart is ripping in two because he loves his countrymen according to the flesh. Because they've been cut off from their heritage. They've been cut off from their salvation in unbelief. And their ethnic advantages, while they still stand, while they still have their ethnic heritage, it can be reclaimed, but only and until they come to faith in their Messiah, the Messiah that God had sent through them, Jesus, the King, the Savior. Second, we learned that God's promise succeeded because he is the potter and we are the clay, and God did it exactly the way he wanted to do it, and no one can stand in judgment of the way God has let this plan roll out. And so all of his examples that he gives, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and the remnants among ethnic Israel demonstrate that. And now God has given even us the offer of salvation through them. And thirdly, we discovered that God's promise succeeded because the world is blessed with salvation through Abraham's descendant, Jesus. That God accomplishes his plan to bless the nations by adopting them into his family. And this salvation is not according to works or meticulous observance of commands. No, it's according, it's a righteousness that is according to faith in the Son of God for Jew and Gentile alike. And this salvation is ours. Is it yours? So what's our application today? A few points I think we should take away from the text. The first one is we should take comfort in God's sovereignty. I don't know about you, but I'm very comforted by the fact that there is a God who is still on the throne and who has not abdicated his throne. I'm comforted by the fact that the course of human history is going to play out exactly as God has foreseen and exactly as God has preordained. I'm comforted by the fact that God has not taken his hands off the wheel. God is still running things. And so I'm comforted by a sovereign God. And next, we pray for ethnic Israel. Do you? Uh, Israelites, natural-born Jews today are coming to faith in droves today by the thousands. Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send forth laborers to bring them, more and more of them, in in these last days. This is unprecedented in 2,000 years. Since the first century, Jews have wanted nothing to do with the Christian faith, and today there are a million believing Jews. Praise God. Pray for them. And thirdly, we should be grieved and anguished in our, anguished in our heart for our own countrymen. I think this principle is portable. I think it's perfectly appropriate, just like Paul, for you and I to have unceasing anguish in our heart, for our countrymen. Who are our countrymen? Idolatrous, materialistic Americans who have left the word of God and turned to their own way, 
to live under their own law and their own authority. And you and I, our hearts should be broken for them. And it should break so much that we want to share the good news of salvation with them because our heart breaks for them. Fourthly, we should be grieved for all the people groups in the world who live oppressed by the devil, who haven't heard this message. I think of the Chinese, those who live in China today. Some of you, you grew up there. You migrated here. You, became, you came to the U.S. and now you live here. Some of you have been on missions trips there. Or God has just given you a particular burden to pray for them. Or you've been like the Mitchells, missionaries there. I'm not sure if you're aware of this. If you've been watching the news, you know that there's tremendous unrest in China today. And when you see these people who are pouring out into their streets and crying out for freedom and crying in the streets for justice, they live in a gulag state. They live in a prison state under a wicked, evil, communist regime. And we need to pray for them. I don't know why, but God has just given me a passion to pray for those in China. Just pray that God will bring Xi to his knees and that the gospel will penetrate that culture and bring many sons to glory. Amen? Amen. It's perfectly appropriate for our hearts to be in anguish for those who are cut off and through their sin, bringing many, heaping many curses upon themselves. Let's pray for them. Father, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you We thank you for the encouragement that you are sovereign and you are king and you are on the throne. Thank you. We're so glad that we don't have to run things because we would surely mess it up. But we're glad you're in control. And God, we pray for ethnic Jews. We pray for Paul's countrymen. We pray that in these last times, as thousands of Jews are responding to the message of Isaiah 53, that you were pierced for their transgressions and you were wounded and bruised for their iniquities and the punishment that brings them peace with God was upon your son. I pray, God, that more and more laborers will go into that harvest field and reap that harvest of sons and daughters. And God, we pray for America. We pray for our own countrymen. Our heart breaks for those in this country who do not know you, who cut themselves off from you, because of their unbelief, who are bringing on themselves all kinds of problems because of their idolatry and their faithlessness. And God, our heart breaks for them. And so we pray for opportunities to share the good news, to just share the story that Jesus saves. (laughs) Jesus saves. God, would you give us the opportunity to share the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ with our friends, our family, our coworkers, our neighbors. And Father, we just want to pray for those who are in China right now, the citizens of China and the church in China. We pray for the church that you would raise them up. God, that you would give them strength and encouragement, encourage our missionaries, encourage all the believers there. Just give them a a steel in their bones for what they're facing. And we also pray that you would make them a witness in the midst of their suffering, a witness to their neighbors. And we pray that the gospel would transform that culture and that you would bring Xi to his knees and set those people free. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.